Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Hi, I'm Joshua, producer for Living Wealthy Radio. Today's interview introduces us to the classical education approach and delves into the question of why our children aren't getting what they need from the modern educational system. You may not realize this, but the classical system that gave us great minds like Newton, Locke, and Plato is based on the individuality of the student and, most importantly, their ability to develop as a person in stages. But today's popular system is based on a flawed model that tries to mix these stages at all ages. The result? Students who are frustrated and disengaged, and later adults who don't have an education equal to the problems they face. Our guest today explains why young children should first acquire facts and information and only later attempt analytical tasks. Later in high school, Students should then be trained in abstract thought and application, hand-in-hand with language skills to articulate their feelings and convictions. What struck me when listening to this talk is how we have a generation of people just spouting off their feelings on social media and in the political realm who don't know how to first learn the facts and find the truth before developing and broadcasting their feelings about it. This is a unique talk you won't hear just anywhere, so stick around. Today's enriching fact of the day is that you can make people like you in under 90 seconds. People are our greatest resource. We rely on them for literally every facet of our lives. We buy from them, sell to them, confide in them, build families with them. Much of our happiness and success in life depends on our ability to foster relationships with other people. And so it's not just preferable, it's paramount that people like us. Nicholas Boothman studied human interaction and the way human connections take place, and he compiled his research in a fascinating book, How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. He shows us just how to make a great first impression to ensure the people we meet are on our side and ready to understand us and help us. Here are his main tips and tricks in a nutshell. First, your contact should be open and warm. And Boothman offers a little ritual to remember making your first connection inviting and memorable. He calls it open, eye, beam, high, lean. It goes like this. Use open body language. You know, unbutton your coat, unfold your arms. Make eye contact. Beam positive emotion from your face, and then say hi as you lean in for an imaginary handshake. That is, unless you're actually shaking their hand, but Boothman points out that just walking up to someone and leaning into a handshake that doesn't actually involve a handshake makes for great body language for just that first hello. So remember, open body language, eye contact, beam, say hi, and lean in. Open eye, beam high, lean. Next, use only open-ended questions that begin with who, what, where, and when. Avoid yes-no questions. They just don't tend towards deep conversation. Get people talking about themselves, and they'll like you. They'll build instant rapport with you. 
Thirdly, find commonalities with them. Remember, people like you because they are like you. If they perceive you are similar to them, they can't help but like you. This doesn't mean you should change who you are, of course, but in those first 90 seconds, be observant and try to pick up on something you have in common you can chat about. Last, synchronization. This one is really cool. If you observe old couples who have been married forever, chances are they use the same gestures when their spouse does, the same tone, etc. They're on the same page. Best friends do this, too. You can speed this up by observing the kind of gestures and tone being used and then mirroring them slightly. Don't full-on copy the person, of course, but if they're leaned forward, elbows on the table, well, lean in and maybe put an elbow on the table. If they are speaking very slowly, slow your speech down a notch. Get in sync, and you'll be amazed how it seems you've built years of rapport in a matter of seconds. Today's enriching fact helps us start out on the right foot with making new connections and friendships. Remember to open up and lean into your greeting, get them talking with open-ended questions, and find common ground as you gradually fall into sync. In just 90 seconds, you can win someone over and make a new connection to help you and enrich your life. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. It's understandable that you might feel in ship shape when the economy is doing well or life is smooth sailing, but when the financial winds kick up or there's an economic downturn or crisis, you realize at the wrong time where the vulnerabilities are in your portfolio. That's why I highly recommend getting a free, customized financial analysis from the team of experts at Financial Battleship. Whether you're a business owner or just looking to shore up your family's finances, Financial Battleship enables you to weather any storm. Their solutions and on-call advisors equip you with liquidity, full use and control of your assets at any time, the option to avoid probate, tax-favored and tax-deferred accumulation and distribution, and so much more. Just head over to buildmybattleship.com for your free analysis, which includes customized insights for cash flow optimization, asset allocation, and a detailed financial blueprint. You'll also get a free ebook loaded with strategic intel for building your financial battleship. Go to buildmybattleship.com and get the confidence to achieve your major financial dreams without the dread of unnecessary risk. Joining us today is Susan Wise Bauer, an educator, historian, and best-selling author of several books, including The Well-Educated Mind, a guide to the classical education you never had. She advocates returning to classical education to solve many of our children's educational problems. And she's here to help us understand why this approach is both timely and so needed in our modern society. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Susan. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just what is a classical education in a nutshell, and how does it differ from a liberal arts or humanities education? 
Well, there's certainly overlap between classical education and what you would think of as a as a traditional liberal arts education. The difference is that classical education really rests on these three developmental stages, which were first recognized in classical times as important to the brain's development. Um, and so the first stage of education is what we call the grammar stage, not because you study lots of grammar, but because Grammar means the, the the sort of the nuts and bolts, the foundational elements of a subject. So during the grammar stage, which is essentially elementary school, the focus is really on memorization, repetition, looking at models, copying. There isn't this intense push towards originality and critical thinking, but rather it's just a time to absorb the basics. Um, and that's something that in ancient times students did when they started out. They didn't do original work. They copied, they memorized, they absorbed, they learned. So that's the first stage. Um, then the second stage is as students move on into middle school, middle school and they're ready to start thinking more critically, what we would call the logic or the dialectic stage, which is where students are encouraged to begin to analyze all of this information that they've gathered. Think about connections. Think about how all of this fits together. Evaluate whether or not it's true or false. Really move into a much more sort of abstract and critical way of thinking. And then the final stage of this education is what we call the rhetoric stage, and it roughly corresponds to high school. And during this phase, students are encouraged to put lots and lots of attention into expression, into putting their own ideas into words, into developing their own theories and philosophies about why the world works the way it does. So a, a, a traditional liberal arts and humanities education is going to incorporate all of these elements. I think what's really distinctive about classical education is the understanding that each one of these stages is appropriate for a different stage in the child's education. They don't have to start expressing themselves all the way back in first grade. And they shouldn't still be memorizing when they're in 11th and 12th grade. Each one of these stages is appropriate for a different part of the brain's development. So, so when it comes to like the early education, there's a lot of information out there that suggests kids um, really can't start reading until there are physical developments that occur. For instance, um, there's a lot of information that says until kids have um, their teeth come in, their permanent teeth come in, they really can't read, right? How does the classical education model um, reconcile some of the, that information that's out there? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I actually, I think I'd push back against that particular fact. I have not seen compelling scientific evidence of a link between permanent teeth and reading. Um, the truth is, is that kids read at widely differing times. Um, I learned to read when I was three. Um, I have very intelligent friends who didn't learn to read until they were eight or nine or even 10. So what classical educators would say is that these these stages do have to do with physical development, but each child moves through these stages at their own pace, you know, at their own um, at their own rate. And one of the real challenges with classical education, and I think one of the reasons why it sort of faded out of public education in particular, and why 
it has definitely been taken up um, by home educators recently is that it requires a lot of flexibility. It requires a lot of individual assessment. It requires the teacher or the parent, whoever is directing this education, to pay close attention to a child's physical maturity. And, you know, I've, I've I have taught so many kids and I have four of my own and I can tell you kids develop at different rates and there is nothing that you can do to force maturity. There's nothing you can do to push a kid from the grammar stage into the logic or the logic to the rhetoric. Maturity the sort of, you know, the, the earth has gone around the sun the appropriate number of times is a really big factor. And when you've got kids, uh, in a classroom and the teacher is responsible for teaching a certain curriculum and has to accommodate for everybody's different level of maturity, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a challenge. It is a challenge. And, you know, the, the sort of the decline of the classical model in public education really went hand in hand with the growing size of classrooms, with the growing student to teacher ratio. You know, if you're managing a classroom of 30 or 40 or 45 students, you absolutely cannot take the time to tailor that work to each student. What you've got to do is just sort of pick what seems to be a reasonable baseline, try to hit that with as many students as possible. And the ones who are bored because they matured more quickly or the ones who are totally lost because they're just not quite there yet are going to get left, you know, either bored or left behind. Um, it's, it is one of the great frustrations of public education, that the goal is so lofty and so good. We're going to provide an education to every kid. And yet its implementation forces teachers to take this one size fits all approach to their subjects that simply doesn't fit with the classical model. So what are the benefits of a classical education, especially for children who already struggle with learning? Well, here again, a lot of the times children who are children are struggling with learning, maybe maybe they do have um, an organic difficulty. You know, there are a lot there's a lot of research being done in learning differences that some kids simply process information so differently from the way we present it within a in a in a you know traditional humanities way that they just can't get that information into their heads but a lot of times children are struggling because their chronological development is just kind of offset um, to what the classroom is doing. So for kids who are struggling, the, the, the advantage of the classical education is that it, it begs teachers and parents to take into account this maturing process of the brain and to teach a child in a way that's age appropriate. And there is so much struggle that happens with young students when they're being asked to do things that are age inappropriate. So I'm just going to give you one example. I reviewed this. uh, It was either a second or third grade history curriculum, and it was about colonial America. And one of the so it sort of presented the story of Pocahontas and John Smith. It's a very iconic American story. And then the way that the students were supposed to interact with the story was to say, to answer these questions, how different is Pocahontas's life from mine? If I had been Pocahontas, what would I have thought when I saw John Smith, you know, in the swamp? And I read this and I thought, okay, here's a classic example, classic in the 
classic, not in the classical sense. Here, here's here's a, an iconic example of a curriculum which is pitched to the wrong maturity level. You're dealing here with a student who's in the grammar stage. That means they should be absorbing information, taking it in. What this curriculum is asking them to do is, first of all, to analyze, to draw, you know, figure out differences between the life that they lead and the life that a child led 300 years ago that they don't even have all the facts about. So not only is it an analytical skill, which is inappropriate for most elementary kids, but it's asking them to draw knowledge they don't really have. And then they're being asked to express their opinion about what they would do. That's a rhetoric level skill. That's a high school level skill. So a lot of the things that, um, in particular, public school curricula ask students to do fail because they are age inappropriate. So what classical education does is it sort of protects the child. It says, give the child something to do that they are physically, emotionally, and mentally capable of. Don't ask them to do things that for many of them are so far out of their reach, you might as well be asking them to solve a quadratic equation. You know, it's just the same level of difficulty. What about for the the younger child, you know, imagination and time to, uh, you know, live in their fantasy world? Yes. And that that is a huge, huge part of education. But when we ask children to use their imagination and live in their fantasy world, the younger they are, the less restricted that should be. We shouldn't be asking them to learn information with their brains, not young children, learn information with their brains and then apply their imaginative facility to it. We should just let them imagine, you know, not tie it to this accumulation of knowledge, which will eventually um, fill their brains with enough information and they'll become comfortable enough with it so that they can exercise their imagination on it. But you don't do that with very young children. And that is what a lot of curricula do Um, Not only is it age inappropriate, but one of the things that we know from studies is that it also disadvantages little boys much more than little girls because that ability to take one way of thinking, an imaginative way of thinking, and apply it to another kind of thinking, you know, a thinking that is tied to facts and to information, does tend to develop a little bit later in boys than it does in girls. It evens itself out by the time they get to high school. But when curricula really focus in on that kind of learning, little boys get frustrated much more quickly, they have higher disengagement rates, and they're more likely to become problem learners. You know, the way that the genders learn is so different. And I've often, I've, I've got a, a son who's 20, going to be 24 years old this month. And, yeah. you know, so much of school today is designed to accommodate how girls learn. Yeah, it, that, it's very true. It's very true. And, and another way to think about this is if a curriculum asks a child to do something that is developmentally inappropriate. So, you know, asks a middle school student who is just learning how to think critically for really sophisticated advanced skills of self-expression, which often, you know, they're not ready for until 10th, 11th, or 12th grade. The way we socialize our children, little girls, middle school girls even, are much more likely to at least try. You know, because they, in most cases, they, they don't want to make the teacher mad. 
Um, they want to please the teacher. And boys are a lot more likely to just get frustrated and shut off because they're not socialized in that same way to please an authority figure. So the truth is, is that a lot of times it's the, the type of learning is equally inappropriate for girls and boys, but the, the disengagement and boredom that girls feel is masked by their desire to be pleasers, whereas the disengagement and boredom that boys feel just comes out. You know, it comes out in it comes out in boredom. It comes out in they're saying they don't care. It comes out in behavioral problems. Mm, so true. Absolutely. So true. So why do you think the classical education has faded from modern education um, besides the fact that it's so difficult to accommodate so many different levels of learning or, or um, stages of learning that each individual child would be at? Are there any other reasons? Well, I, you know, the testing culture has a great deal to do with this. Um, classical education is a bit of a long, slow haul. You know, you you start you you start with an elementary student, but your eye is always on the finish line. Your eye is on what you're trying to get to by the time you get to twelfth grade, and what you're trying to get to by the time you get to twelfth grade is a student who can find and absorb information. That's something they learn how to do during the grammar stage. Evaluate how that information fits together and whether or not it's true. That's what they learn to do during the logic stage. And then express their own opinion about it um, in elegant and sophisticated language. That's the rhetoric stage. Um, this is a long process. And because you have to you have to do it in tune with the child's developmental stages, um, if you try to test a third grader, um, the third grader is going to show some, you know, great strides in gathering of information, but they're not going to show much progress in the way of critical thinking or self-expression. And our testing culture wants students to move evenly forward in each one of these areas every year. And, uh, you know, the classical model doesn't lend itself to great test results if that's what's being measured. So, you know, test results have just been tied to so many aspects of modern education, to teacher retention, to salaries, to, you know, college admissions, to funding for school, um, that, you know, to, to pursue a classical education really requires a rejection of testing culture. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Which is probably why so many non-traditional schooling situations have embraced classical education. Yeah. Yes, it's very true because you have to step out of lockstep um, in order to pursue this kind of education. I wrote the, the most recent book I wrote is called Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. And I spend a lot of time in this book saying to parents, you may not realize this, but you don't have to submit to testing. You can opt out of testing if it's not good for your child. If you don't feel it's going to properly measure what your child is learning, you can push back against this one aspect um, of, of public education and stay within the public education system. So much of what parents need to do is get a, a rounded view of what they hope education is going to accomplish for their child, and then continually push back against those aspects of the educational situation their child is in that don't fit in with this vision. And that is one way that parents can push back. You don't have to 
Um, you don't have to to enter your child into the, the testing machine. You can just let them step aside before they go through the door. I think more and more families, you know, when my son was in school, um, homeschooling was around, classical education was around, but you had to find it. And I was fortunate enough to find it and have several amazing options. And he did have an unbelievable foundation in terms of his his education. Um, really, I'm so blessed and grateful that we had these opportunities. But back then, we were different. You know, our most of our friends, kids did go to regular private schools or public school. But today, there's so much more awareness of how children learn the different types of education. I think more and more families are looking for an alternative to public schools and even the public school systems in order to compete. They've realized they can't offer the same type of curriculum, which is why they've got so many different types of charter schools. Right, right. No, that's absolutely true. And I think parents are realizing the extent to which they do have control over their kids' education. I know one of one of our more recent ventures has been the establishment of um, an online academy. So it's for grades five through 12. And we teach, you know, classical methods. We teach um, fully live classes with instructor interaction. And so many parents who enroll their kids for classes are enrolling their kids for maybe one classes, two classes, maybe three. But they're fitting that into a larger pattern that they're designing themselves. And because there are so many more opportunities to sort of piece together a coherent education for your child, um, you don't have to just, you know, put them on the school bus when they're five years old, along with everyone else. You can really choose to shape that differently in a way that suits your child and your family. And thank God for that. I, I look back, yeah. I do have a few, a few things I would have done a little bit differently with my son, but um, don't we all? <laughs> and at the end of the day, you know, I, um, he's just brilliant and so gifted and so beautiful in his own way. And I did project to him, you know, and an expectation Right. And so I wish I could get that time back. And, you know, if I could tell my younger, my younger mom self, right, um, a few things I would, but we all do the best we can. And uh, he's certainly, I think I've, I've always said to him, you know, one day, I hope you forgive me for all my mistakes. Right. And uh, he, <laughs> he, he seems to be cool. But um so let's um, talk a little bit about your background. You're an accomplished historian and history is so important in classical education. In fact, you know, my son loves history. I think that's one of the things that he developed out of the classical education is a love for history yeah. and has the kind of history we need to learn changed? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, American historical education in particular has always been pretty poor, to tell you the truth. I mean, um, I, I don't think what we need to know has changed. I think that we are we are coming to an understanding of how inadequate our past patterns have been. So, um, you know, ask anybody who went through, you know, sort of a standard 12 years of public education and they'll tell you, you sort of start with social studies, which is, you know, 
your local community and how your government works. And then you do American history and you do more American history and you do more American history and you do state history. Um, and then you do American history and you some at some point you might do a year of world history, maybe even two years of world history. But our emphasis um, in American education has so myopically been upon the history of the United States um, that a lot of people just never got beyond that. I mean, I taught college freshmen at the College of William and Mary for 15 years, and I taught the American Literature Survey, and they were really astounded, my, my freshmen, um, that Benjamin Franklin went to France. You know, they thought, what What's he doing in France? What does that have to do with the American Revolution? Well, it's because they had studied American history one year. And then when they did their world history, they did it in a completely disconnected way in another year. And there were no connections between what happens around the world and what happens in the United States. And, you know, I think the result of this was to give generations of students this this really false picture of the United States that were like this, you know, big rubber ball with impermeable sides sort of floating through time. And occasionally other countries bounce off of us, but nothing that they do really affects us unless we have to fight a war with them. And that has never been true. But in this world, which is so interconnected and in which it is so visible what's now going on in other countries, it is just more inadequate than ever. So classical education um, at its best, when it studies history, really focuses on what's going on all around the world in one particular era, not on sort of what's going on in one particular country. And that really allows us to get a much truer vision of the human story. It's such an amazing curriculum. Give an example, like a ninth grade freshman in a classical curriculum, how all the different studies, right, everything they're studying is actually, um, and I, I probably won't use the right words, but it's like based in the, a similar era of time, right? Yeah, right. So so if a, ninth, a, a typical ninth grade student, you know, going on into high school is going to be introduced for the first time to basic principles of rhetoric, which means he's going to go back to Aristotle and Plato, who first... Um, laid out principles of effective communication, because that's what rhetoric is, principles of effective communication. So let's, we'll just start with that. The language arts curriculum is really going to focus on this introduction to effective communication. Well, that, that instantly brings up a question. What is effective communication? Well, Aristotle points out that there's a tension between effective, which means that you can convince people to adopt your point of view, and ethical because in you can get someone to adopt your point of view if you manipulate their emotions or distort the facts or use certain types of inflammatory language or fill them with fear about what will happen if they don't agree so right from the beginning of this you know entry into the study of communication the student is made aware that there's a tension between what is most effective and what might actually be true and ethical and moral. And that kind of becomes the central tension that the student also grapples with in history as they're studying ancient times. And you see examples of tyrants and demagogues who were extremely effective communicators um, because they terrified people. 
Uh, and this, you know, becomes a, a theme in the in ancient literature as well. When you you see writers struggling with what does a leader do? What does a virtuous leader look like? How does a country evaluate whether or not a leader is a good leader? Are we looking at whether they're effective? Or are we looking at whether they're ethical and moral and what is the difference? And, you know, all you have to do is open the either New York Times or turn on Fox News and you will see this same question right in your face today. So, you know, classical education is consistently um, not just teaching us about the past, but reflecting on the present and forcing us to reflect on the present. And in the conversation with history, I have to ask you this question because it's it's so fascinating. You know, the older you become, you see how, like today, in today's, let's say, political environment that's creating history, you've got so many different perspectives, right? And everybody's mm-hmm. got their own truth. And so when you study history... It's it's never more apparent to me, at least, that whoever wrote that history, that was just one perspective. Mm-hmm. How do you find the truth in studying history? Well, that is the project of classical education. You know, that is an ongoing question to which classical education attempts to find the answers. Um, it, it, it's not a there's not a there's not a bullet list of steps that you can take. To, to know that you've reached the truth. But the reflection on what is truth and how do we find it is central to the project of becoming educated. Even knowing that that question is there to be asked and knowing what sorts of answers can and can't be given to it, that is all part of the project of becoming an educated woman, an educated man, an educated citizen. Well, and I personally think there is a an agenda to dumb us down. I really- um, well, I'm, I'm wary of that statement because, um, well, because I'm wary of conspiracy theories and that sounds like there's a, an organized conspiracy. Um, I've been, I've been writing world history for the last 15 or 20 years and <laughs> something that becomes just clearer and clearer, the more history that you study and the more world history that you study is that, People are people are too diverse. They are um, they are too independent minded. They are too um, they are they are they are too engaged in their own development to um, join together in massive conspiracies. It's just it doesn't it just doesn't happen. So most of the things, particularly in educational trends that I find damaging or that I would look at and say, yes, that is making us stupider, are not intentional. They are a side effect of systems which have been overwhelmed by numbers, um, systems which are run by people who are underpaid and overworked, systems that were never designed to do what they're now being asked to do. So it... um, I, I, I ascribe a lot of agency to incompetence in history, um, more so than conspiracy. Well, I think we'll agree to disagree there. I think there is okay. an, an, an agenda um, 
you know, conspiracy otherwise, I don't know. But certainly there is an agenda uh, in terms of um, the quality of education that's being offered. And I, I think it's it's by design. Um, but well, we'll leave that there. I know that that was one of the reasons why I decided to have a different educational experience for my son. And when it came to the offerings that were out there, in my understanding of classical education, it made him have, uh, you know, developed a way to think critically, not just regurgitate facts and information, right? And mm-hmm. so um, that's certainly one of the benefits to classical education is you you really become a critical thinker and you've got a, a not only uh, a view of the world from an American's perspective, right? But a worldview and knowing what, what was going on in a different era uh, of time from the American perspective, from the European perspective, from Asia, from Russia. I mean, it's it was just phenomenal to be a witness to that educational process. And so often I said, Oh my gosh, I would have loved to have gone back to school. Right. And uh, had the benefit of the classical education. So in today's world though, in this increasingly digital world, uh, how does classical education fit? I know you said you were making, uh, you have offerings of online curriculum of classical education. Um, but so much of classical education has a, a traditional feel. There's cursive writing and handwriting that's so important for the younger kids. And, you know, so many of our kids today aren't writing. Mm-hmm. Well, classical education is very, very word focused. Um, that's not necessarily the same as being print focused. Uh, keeping keeping um, a familiarity and an ease and a love of print is certainly one part of the classical agenda. Um, but, you know, everybody who does classical education now does what I would call neoclassical education. We're not doing exactly what Plato and Aristotle did. And if we were, it wouldn't be very useful because we live in the 21st century. So classical education um, is not tied to the fate of the printed book. It is certainly concerned for the fate of the printed book. And as you, you know, remark about, you know, cursive, for example, there are aspects of pre-digital uh, print culture that still have great value for mental and physical development. And, you know, those the classical educator holds on to. But the real focus of a classical education is to produce a student who is literate, meaning that they can gather and understand ideas in whatever format those ideas are presented. So a neoclassical education um, really stretches far beyond the pages of a book, certainly incorporates them, but stretches beyond them. Well said. Well said. So what would you tell parents today, right, that have young kids and they're trying to make the best choice possible for their children in terms of education, private school and all the different varieties of private schools that are out there, public schools, home education. How do parents know which choice to make? Well, I think the number one thing, and I'm speaking here not so much as a teacher, but as a parent, and my kids now are, I'll make sure I get this right, 28, 26, 23, and 19. Um, 
the most important thing is to pay attention to this is going to sound, you know, simplistic, but it's very true to whether or not your child is happy. So I talk to a lot of parents who are sort of, you know, agitating about whether or not they should make a big change. And I say, well, how, how's your child doing? Oh, well, my child loves school. You know, can't wait to get on the bus. They're, you know, getting all their homework done. They're getting good grades. They're learning. And I say, okay, we're not going to mess with that situation. What parents have to be really alert to is the child that's frustrated, crying, um, always sick and can't go to school, showing anger, um, you know, showing aggression, um, showing other signs that there is frustration that's not being addressed. And when you see that, you know it's time to make a change. And it takes um, persistence, it takes energy, and it takes wisdom to figure out what's going on. Is the child um, is the child of the personality that needs to be by themselves to learn because some kids are? Are they just overwhelmed by the amount of noise that's around them? Are they slightly behind, more than slightly behind, in chronological development? Are they just a slow mature? Are they ahead in chronological development? Um, in what areas of school are they starting to show frustration? You have to answer those questions first before you can start to think, okay, am I looking at a smaller classroom? That might mean private school. Am I looking at a curricula that focuses on different ways of learning that could be either private or homeschool is this child an introvert that needs to get out of the classroom altogether that's definitely pointing you towards homeschool just remember that there is no one size fits all um, there are students who have graduated from public private and homeschool who thrive and so you know don't let anybody convince you that there is one single option that's best um, you're the parent. You are sensitive to your child. Trust your gut instinct. I spend so much time telling parents to trust their gut. Um, I, I speak at a lot of education conferences, and a lot of times I'll have a parent come up to me and say, here's a problem. And I'll say, what do you think they should do? And they say, well, I think. And then they outline this perfectly elegant solution. And I say, yes, that's what you should do. They didn't have the courage to move ahead with that without getting like the stamp of approval from an authority, which in that case was me. So be, it, the child is your child. Be sensitive to your child. Ask yourself what is going on with this child and trust your gut when it tells you, let's try this. And remember that no decision you make is permanent. You know, you can always change it around again in the second semester the next year. Um, and in many cases, that's what kids need. As they grow, mature, solve some problems, encounter others, they need you to be flexible in uh, what you're planning for their education. I think that was very, very well said, Susan. And, and I would add, there's not a one size fits all. You know, you have Absolutely. four children, right? And I'm sure right. I would assume that what was good for one child wasn't necessarily good for another child. And that Absolutely. You might have four different learning styles with the, with your children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the mistakes I made was trying to fit my son, you know, um, you know, like fitting a, a, a round peg into a square hole, right? And or a square space. And that was more to do with me than him. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so 
when we look at being intuitive or introspective about what's best for the child, you know, one of the things that I would tell my younger self is separate you and your experience and what you want and try to focus more from the child's perspective. Because I think sometimes we project our own stuff onto our children and it's not about the child. It's more about our stuff. Yes. And I would, I would take that actually even a little bit further. Um, (laughs) Speaking as a parent, the decisions that I made in terms of my kids' education that I now regret, you know, the ones that I look back and say, I really would have done that differently. I did not by looking closely at who the child was that year, that moment, you know, that month. I made those because I was projecting ahead to what might happen in the future, but hadn't happened yet. I was making decisions out of fear, fear of what might happen in the future. And I have said this many times, so I always welcome the chance to say it again. Every decision that I made out of fear about what was going to happen in the future, you know, they'll never get into college sorts of decisions. They'll never get a job. Um, turned out to be the wrong decisions because I wasn't looking at the child as the child was at, in front of me. I wasn't looking at the child in front of me. I was looking ahead to what might happen. Of course, we have to be prudent. Of course, we have to think ahead. But when it comes to decision-making, always ask yourself, what child are you looking at? Are you looking at the one standing in front of you or are you looking at the the, um, the hypothetical child in four years or six years or even eight or 10 years, because that's going to really change the way you make decisions. I can totally relate. Absolutely. And you said that so well, and I just resonate so much with that because I do remember, you know, some of my fears were, oh my gosh, like, how's he going to make it in college? How's he going to make it in life? (laughs) Right. And that, that was my issue. That wasn't his issue, right? Mm -hmm. And that was my stress and my anxiety and my fear that I was projecting into the decision-making process as opposed to what did my child need at that moment or at that period in time. And it wasn't about making things easy for him because I was aware enough to know, hey, we learn so much from our struggles, right? We don't learn when things are easy. We learn when, when things are tough and you know, it wasn't about that. It was more about like, oh my gosh, like, how's he going to make it in life? And he was such an easy child. He was such a great child in so many ways. And so it was really all my issues. <laughs> it was all, yeah. I look back and, yeah. and see like, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would make some, some major changes, but that's okay. Thank God he came out the way he did. And, um, I, I love the work that you do. I love your message. Uh, I hope if, you know, you and the audience have young kids and you're looking at different options that you would look into the work that Susan does and classical education, it is absolutely and just an amazing, amazing curriculum. And thank you, Susan, for joining us on Living Wealthy Radio today and let our listeners know how they can follow you online and learn more about the work that you do. Yes, absolutely. Well, my website is SusanWiseBauer.com and it's W-I-S-E, like just wise, and then B-A-U-E-R. You can also find me at SusanWiseBauer.com, at SusanWiseBauer on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. 
Uh, you can also go to welltrainedmind.com to find out more specifically about the classical curricula that we offer. Beautiful. Well, thank you again and look forward to hopefully having you on again in the future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 